Glad you could join us today for worship. If we have not met, my name is Chase, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Ignite Church. Uh, Before we get into the Word today, we're going to be in Matthew 24. I do want to highlight a special event happening in the life of our church. Uh, Today, following second service, we are going to have a membership vote to affirm Wyatt Brandt. He's our elder candidate, our executive pastor candidate, and we're going to vote to affirm him and install him um, as one of our pastors. So immediately following second service today, if you are a member here at Ignite Church, please join us right here in this room uh, to vote on the installation of Wyatt. Wyatt's a good uh, man, a good friend, a godly man, and uh, we're excited to uh, see what the Lord does in this next season of ministry for us. Well, if you have a Bible, do invite you to open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. We're going to begin in verse 45 this morning. And if you are new here or joining us for the first time in a while, you may wonder why this particular passage for this morning. Well, the short of it is because we left off at verse 44 last week, and so we pick up in verse 45 this week. Uh, We've been in the Gospel of Matthew now for a few years, and we're preaching through it verse by verse chapter by chapter. And this summer, we find ourselves giving particular attention to chapters 24 and 25 of this gospel. This section of scripture has been known for a long time as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. And in these chapters, Jesus teaches on a doctrine that's been known to stir a lot of controversy, raise a lot of questions. And Jesus is teaching on eschatology, eschatology, and that simply means the study of the last things. So as a believer, if you've ever asked the question, are we living in the end times? Or is Jesus returning soon? If you've ever asked that, you're asking the central questions of eschatology, the study of the last things. So Jesus does use these verses, these two chapters to teach on his second coming. And I do recognize that many questions surround this doctrine, the the timing and the interpretation of it. But I want to draw your attention to where all Christians universally for 2,000 years have agreed regarding this doctrine. And it is this, the return of Christ is the hope of the church. It's the hope of the church. Regardless of where we stand on this doctrine, Christians for thousands of years believe that when Christ returns at the close of history, He will do so triumphantly. He will execute judgment. He will gather his people. He will establish his eternal kingdom for all to see. We believe that. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. But until that day, the question remains, how are we to live while we wait? Generation after generation has wrestled with this question. What do we do? How has God called us to live while we wait for that day? When Christ returns. And that's really the question that Jesus is addressing in these verses as we study together. So, our text today, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 45, is a parable. That is, it's an ordinary story illustrating a spiritual truth. And Jesus tells this simple parable to encourage us to live wisely while we wait for his return. Follow along as I read verses 45 through 51. Jesus says this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household 
to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does this parable teach us? Very simply this, the return of Christ should stir us to live faithfully and fruitfully. The return of Christ should stir us to live faithfully and fruitfully. And Jesus illustrates this truth by contrasting two types of servants. One wise, the other wicked. And so we're going to spend our time this morning looking at what I might call the distinguishing marks of the wise servant and the distinguishing marks of the wicked servant. And as we study today, I I invite you to do this. Search your heart. I invite you to take a spiritual inventory as we read the distinguishing marks of first the wise and then the wicked servants. Listen, here's the reality. Even as believers, we can have a tendency toward wickedness, can't we? We can have a tendency to reflect more the things of this world than the things of Christ, can't we? And so as we read this, this is not just a distinction between those who have faith in Christ and those who do not. Man, this text is a call for believers, for the church, to reflect wisely and sober-mindedly on these attributes. So ask yourself, prayerfully consider, do you bear the marks of the wise servant or the wicked servant? It's good to read Scripture with our hearts ready to obey. It's good to read Scripture with our hearts softened, prepared to be transformed by the power of Christ. So it's with this background we now turn. Let's look first at the three marks of the wise servant. This is in verses 45 through 47. We see the first mark is that the wise servant is faithful. The wise servant is faithful. Jesus opens with this question. He asked his disciples this in AD 30, and now he continues to ask his church this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Who is the faithful and wise servant? You know, it's interesting, Jesus uses this analogy in this parable of a servant. In the New Testament period, servants were primarily two things. They were stewards or managers of their master's possessions, and they were workers in their master's homes. They were stewards and they were workers. That's why Jesus in verse 45 describes the work of the servant First as a steward, he is set over the master's house. But then also as a worker, he gives them food at their proper time. They were stewards and they were workers. Now to be a servant in this era, uh, the New Testament period, it it certainly wasn't um, a demeaning position per se, but it was a lowly position. Um, Servants in this era were actually treated quite well. They were treated as family, though they were not blood relatives. But the servant in this period would have, this office would have carried with it a sense of indebtedness. This servant would have no work if the master had not hired him. 
So it was a lowly position, yes, but it was also a position of great indebtedness. They owed a lot to their master, giving them work. And it's this analogy, this idea of a servant that Jesus uses to describe his church. Christ is looking for faithful and wise servants. And I don't want to assume we understand this, so I want to draw attention to this simple truth that we might even just gloss over as we read it, but it is this, we are servants. Nothing more, nothing less. We, we are servants of Christ. You say, are you just getting that from this one parable? No, uh, as you read through the New Testament, every New Testament writer began his letters by saying, here's my name and here's my job description. Here's my title. So we have Paul in Romans chapter one. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ. We have Peter in 2 Peter chapter one. Peter, a servant of Christ. We have James, who, by the way, was the brother of Jesus. If you have siblings, there's not enough money in the world to say, I'm that person's servant. Yet, James opens his letter by saying, James, a servant of Christ. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation says, God gave me this vision to reveal to his servants concerning the things of the end. We are servants, this is true. And for some of us, this may rub us the wrong way. We're used to being in charge. We're used to having authority and people under us. Let me tell you this. It is a lowly call, but man, what a spiritually exalting call it is to be servants of Christ. Christ himself was the greatest servant, wasn't he? I was reading this week, John chapter 13. Unthinkable story where Jesus, the night before he was crucified, sitting with his 12 arguing disciples. And he interrupts the meal by getting up, taking off his outer garment, and washing the feet of each of his disciples. Jesus Christ is a servant. He served his people. He serves his people. We are called to nothing short of that. We are called to be servants of the Most High God. This is who we are. This is what we do. I want to look quickly at verse, um, well, Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. This is Jesus instructing his disciples on the heart position of servants. Okay, we know we're servants. We know that's our title. We know that's our role. What does that look like? What should our heart posture be before the Lord as servants? Here's what Jesus says in Luke 17, 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And here it is, verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. In other words, when we're before the throne, when Christ returns, as servants, we're not going to say, look at everything I did for you, Lord. What are you going to do for me? No, Jesus instructs us to have the following heart. Instructs us to have a heart that says, 
Lord, I don't deserve reward. I've simply done what was commanded of me. I'm an unworthy servant to even be standing before you. That's the position of a humble, wise servant. So as we wait for Christ's second coming, Jesus is looking for the faithful and wise servant. We see next the distinguishing mark of the wise servant in verse 46 is that he is fruitful. He is fruitful. Jesus says this, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So the master's away. He fully expects his servants to be doing their job while he's away. And when that master returns, similarly when Christ comes back at the end of history, he wants to find his wise servants so doing the work of the kingdom when he returns. And in this short verse, we really have a twofold call implied here. The master wants to find the servant so doing his work when he comes. We're called to combat idleness and then bear spiritual fruit. While we wait for the return of Christ, we're not called to be indifferent. We're not called to be lazy. We're not called to be idle. We're called to do kingdom work. We've been given a stewardship as servants. We've been given work to do as servants of the kingdom. And so the master, when he returns, wants to find us doing that work. So we combat idleness, we bear spiritual fruit. Jesus is not only looking for faithful servants, but according to verse 46, he's looking for hardworking or fruitful servants. This is why we often pray for Christ to forgive us of the things that we have done, but also the things that we've left undone. If we take a spiritual inventory, maybe at the end of the day, Certainly, we repent of the sins we know we committed. But if we just sit a little while longer, isn't it true that we realize the things we left undone that we actually should have done for Christ? And so we're called to combat idleness and also bear spiritual fruit. Christ is looking for fruitful servants. So you may ask, well, fruitful, that's kind of a churchy term. What does that mean to be fruitful? Is there any way to know if I'm hitting or missing the mark of fruitfulness? Well, there is. Paul gives instructions. Uh, Turn with me very quickly to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. In these verses, Paul describes the nature of the fruitful Christian. what What does fruitful work look like as believers? And listen as I read what Paul says. He says this, "...put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved..." compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So if you wonder, am I living a life pleasing to the Lord? Am I bearing the fruit? Am I doing the work that Christ has called me to do? Stick a bookmark in Colossians 3. 
Simply go to this text, take a spiritual inventory. Am I living fruitfully? Am I doing this? And if you're honest, let me say this, you'll quickly realize I'm falling short in almost every one of these categories. Well, what do you do then? Don't be driven to despair, but instead ask the Holy Spirit who dwells in you to empower you to obey. This is the life of the Christian calling us to fruitfulness. So the wise servant is faithful. He's fruitful. He is to be found so doing when his master returns. And lastly, verse 47, the third mark, is that this wise servant was rewarded. Rewarded. Verse 47, truly or amen, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I simply want to point out to you that the wise servant does not do a bunch of work and then ask for the promotion. Right? The wise servant has that heart of Luke 17 that we read earlier. I'm just doing what I've been commanded to do. And he doesn't ask for the promotion. He doesn't ask for the master to exalt him. Instead, the master looks at his work and verse 47 simply sets him over all his possessions. His character and his life, his work speaks for itself. I think it's 1 Peter 5 where Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. We don't want to be that guy or that gal who's working in every day being like, God, would you reward me for that? That's not the heart of a servant. The heart of a servant is, this is who I am. I serve a gracious, good master who's given me good work to do, and I'm just going to do it and leave the results with the Lord. He will set him over all his possessions. Before we move on, I just want to draw out this principle for you. Um, I've even used this sarcastically. Uh, If someone does a good thing, I say, treasure's in heaven. You got them. I'm not giving you anything, but you got treasure's in heaven. Um, But did you know that's a reality? Did you know that Christ has prepared in eternity's past a reward for you? This is what uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy. We won't go there, but Paul says, I'm at the end of my life. I've worked faithfully and fruitfully. And he tells Timothy, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of life in heaven. Or in Matthew 25, which God willing, we'll get there uh, in a couple weeks here. um, We have another parable using this illustration of servanthood. And Jesus says, the master says to the faithful servants, you probably know this, well done, good and faithful servant. That's reward enough. For the creator of the universe, the savior of his people, to look at his creation, to look at me, to look at you, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the life I've prepared for you. So the wise servant is faithful. He's fruitful. He's rewarded. But now we look at the contrast Jesus now details three marks of the wicked servant. Take spiritual inventory as we read this. Many of us aspire to be the wise servant. Absolutely. 
but humbly ask the Lord, do I bear the marks of the wise or the wicked servant? Here's the first mark of the wicked servant. This is detailed in verses 48 through 51. The wicked servant is unfaithful to his master. Here's what verse 48 says. But, that's a contrast, we're switching gears now. But, if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, we'll stop there. In the heart and in the thought process of this wicked servant is thinking, my master's not coming back for a long time, so I'm going to live and do as I please. I'm going to put off the work he's entrusted to me because he's not returning for a while. This is a posture and a heart attitude of unfaithfulness. I'll give you a sobering analogy, but I think it captures the weight of this truth, thinking my master is delayed. It's as if your spouse were to go away for some time and you just have the thought enter your mind, well, now is my time to be unfaithful to her or to be unfaithful to him. It's not a question of whether or not you act on that thought. The reality is that thought has entered your mind and you have a disposition toward unfaithfulness in that moment. It's that heart attitude that the wicked servant has. My master is delayed, so I'm going to live and do as I please. In relation to the second coming, this concept of my master being delayed is really the greatest lie Satan tells his church. Sorry, it's not his church, it's Christ's church. It's the greatest lie Satan tells believers in Christ's church. Christ is delayed, so live and do what you please. Christ isn't coming back for a while, so you have time to not share the gospel with that person. You get what I'm saying? This is a lie of the enemy to say, hey, Christ hasn't come back for 2,000 years. You have time. But as we read in the previous weeks, Jesus says, stay awake. Jesus says, be ready. You don't know when I'm returning. So the wicked servant has a heart attitude, a disposition toward unfaithfulness. Next, verse 49, the wicked servant bears the mark of unfruitfulness. The wise servant was fruitful. Uh, He was doing the work his master called him to do. But the wicked servant is unfruitful. Look at what the wicked servant does. He thinks, my master is delayed, verse 49, and the servant begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. In other words, the wicked servant lives recklessly and selfishly while his master is away. In our culture today, we have two words to describe this type of reckless and unfruitful behavior. The first is antinomianism. The anti-what? Antinomianism. This comes the way I understand it from the Greek, anti-against, and then namos, which means law, against law or no law. Use an illustration to illustrate this principle of being antinomian, living as if there's no law. You may know about the Autobahn road system in Germany that there is virtually no speed limit in much of that area. And so if you're driving on the Audubon, you're driving in such a way that there is no speed limit, no law. It's living as if there's no law, living recklessly and selfishly. The second word to describe this behavior would be autonomy 
We're familiar with that. Autonomy. That literally means self-law. So there are two really ways to live. We live as if there's no law of God and we live as though uh, God's law is irrelevant to us because I'm a law to myself. And church, let me say this. When we live as if God's law is not relevant, as if there's no law, or we live as though we are the ultimate law to ourselves, we bear the marks of the wicked servant. Jesus famously says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so the wicked servant lives as if there's no law. The wicked servant lives as if he's a law unto himself. But this is simply unfruitful behavior. It's reckless, it's selfish. It's what the biblical authors call the fruit of the flesh. The fruit of the flesh. What are those? Very quickly, Galatians 5. This is Paul again writing to the church. We gave you the marks of the fruitful person in Colossians. But what about the marks of the works of the flesh? Right, because very quickly before we read Galatians, we we might have a tendency to read verse 48, excuse me, verse 49, where Jesus says, this wicked servant, he beat his fellow servants and he eats and drinks with drunkards. We we might have a tendency to say, well, that's not me. I, I don't struggle with those things, so I'm probably wise. No, there's much more than that. Galatians 5. Uh, It's verses 19 through 21. Here's what Paul says. Now the works, literally the fruit of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, that's a long list. Yeah, there's no getting away from that, is there? These are the works of the flesh. The wicked servant indulges himself in these works. Finds joy and meaning and purpose in these works. Is not bound by God's law, but is bound to his own law. Doing what is right in his own eyes. This is the mark of the unfruitful, wicked servant. Lastly, the third mark of the wicked servant. Unfaithful, unfruitful, and we see in verses 50 through 51, he is ultimately condemned. Let me read it. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the master returns and he pays the servant his wages due. Now you read this and you're thinking this is a terrible description of judgment and condemnation. Yeah, there's no way around that. It's written, so what are we going to do with it? Are are we going to close our Bibles and act like, no, God's judgment and his condemnation doesn't exist? It's not that severe? Or are we going to deal with it and say, God has spoken. What do I do? 
This is a description of the judgment that is to come at the close of history, the second coming of Christ. He'll set up his throne and judge the living and the dead, separate the sheep from the goats, the wicked from the wise. And we're told in this parable, a description of this judgment, that it will be a day of division, a day of death being cut into pieces. This echoes the Old Testament language of animal sacrifice where to make atonement for their sins, they would cut animals. Okay, this is a day of death. We're told there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're told in Revelation that Hell is a real place. It is unending. It is eternal. The smoke of their torment of the wicked goes up forever and ever. It is a terrible description of judgment. We shouldn't delight in this. But we should face it seriously and soberly. Much more could be said, but here's what I want you to to see in this parable, in this text. It is first that the wicked servant earned his wages. He lived with no regard to the law and the commands and the obligations of his master, and so he was paid accordingly. He, He was fired. He was let go because he wasn't doing his work. Okay, he earned his wages. But I also want you to see this, and this is a principle that's true for God's judgment. The wicked servant received not only what he deserved, but also what he wanted all along. Hear me when I say this. There will be no one in hell who is there because he does not want to be. People who are separated from the love of God for all eternity are there because they lived without regard to the things of Christ. They say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And so God gives them what they wanted all along and gives them over to separation from his presence. This wicked servant was climbing the ladder of success, working hard, but realized, if you will, his ladder was against the wrong building, doing all of these unfruitful, wicked things, and at the end of the day, his work was exposed, and his master found him lacking in service. The return of Christ should stir us to live faithfully and fruitfully. You're probably realizing pretty quickly as we study the doctrine of the second coming of Christ that it is a sobering and serious reality because it's going to be a day where our works are exposed. There will be no hiding from the eyes and presence of God on that day, church. Only if you are hidden in Christ by faith will you be spared from the judgment of God. We will not stand before the Lord and say, look at all the good things I've done apart from Christ. No one does righteous, no, not one. Only in Christ 
are we viewed as perfectly righteous because of his atoning work? I close with the words of verse 45 again. The question Jesus opens this parable with. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? He asks you this today. Not just of his church corporately, but you individually. He asks, who is the faithful and wise servant? Can I invite you to take spiritual inventory today and honestly ask the Lord, am I bearing the marks of the wise servant or the wicked servant? And in those areas where you realize you are falling short of God's righteous, good standard, plead the blood of Christ. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. It's as simple as placing your faith in the finished work of Christ, not your own works, dying to self, being united to Christ. When you do that, you receive God's Holy Spirit in you. When you believe you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Paul says. And so when we're given the Spirit, we're empowered to live wisely. We're empowered to live righteously in Christ while we wait for his return. Let me close with this. May God in Christ return and find this church, find you wise and eager, waiting for his return. May he find us faithful in the house of God.